Yes, it is great to be with you. Thank you for having me. I do love coming to this part of the country. Uh, always a lot of fun. And uh, certainly love to uh, go and see what's going on at other CREC churches, see how the Lord is working. And I know we can uh, learn from each other and our fellowship together can be a great blessing. Uh, I'm excited to spend this weekend with you. I'm excited we get to spend this weekend together in God's Word. And there is no better place in God's Word to be than the book of Psalms. We just sang two Psalms. It's interesting. I uh, preached last weekend, the conference that, uh, that, that Tyler mentioned, I preached on Psalm 128 there and preaching on Psalm 23 here tonight. So uh, that was nice to, to sing those. The Psalms are uh, one of the, God's greatest gifts to us. Uh, the Psalms contain the whole Bible and the whole of life in 150 divinely inspired but fully human Psalms. Uh, John Calvin famously said, the Psalms are an anatomy of all parts of the soul. And we'll see that this weekend. We will see that aspect of the Psalter. We will look at the Psalms and we will allow the Psalms to dissect our hearts. We will allow the Psalter to teach us about ourselves. But it would be a mistake to think that the Psalter is only about opening up the human soul. Uh, that would be a pietistic misuse of the Psalter, you could say, as if the Psalms were only concerned with the inner recesses of our minds and our hearts. The Psalms not only reveal the soul, they also reveal the meaning and direction of history. The Psalms not only open up our hearts, the Psalms open up to us the meaning of creation. And so the Psalms cannot be confined to private spirituality. The Psalter makes public claims. The Psalms teach political truths. They deal with hearts, yes, but also with nations. And so the Psalter is truly comprehensive. The Psalms deal with every facet of human life and culture. They deal with private life, with our private spirituality, you could say. They also deal with public life, with history, and with creation, with culture. This weekend, we're going to look at four Psalms, and uh, at times we'll see the Psalter focus its searching spotlight on our interior lives. At other times, we will uh, use the Psalms to help us better understand and act in the world around us. We live in challenging times. Does anybody doubt that? We live in challenging times, very odd times, really, uh, in a lot of ways. Are we on the brink of World War III? Uh, are we about to enter into a recession or something much worse? Are there any major institutions left in our culture that we can trust? What do we do about the fact that the family seems to be coming apart, that the family seems to be ripping apart at the seams? What do we do about corruption and cowardice? Yes, in the culture at large and certainly uh, in our politics, but what do we do about corruption and cowardice in the church? How do we handle skyrocketing anxiety and depression rates? What do we do about the persecution of the church which seems to be looming. Uh, there is a psalm for every occasion, and it's really interesting. The ancient Israelites literally covered their lives with the psalms. They had a psalm for every occasion. So just to give you some examples of this, Psalm 126 and 137 were used at mealtimes. Uh, psalm 5 would be used at morning prayer. Psalm 145 would be used at evening prayer. Psalm 2 was used for a king's coronation. Uh, Psalms 45 and 84 were used at weddings. Psalms 120 to 134 were used on Sabbaths and when they made their journeys to the temple. And on and on we could go. Again, a psalm for every 
occasion. Uh, Paul in Ephesians 5, verse 18, commands psalm singing. He says, be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, seeking and making melody in your heart to the Lord. He commands us to be filled with the Spirit, and the manifestation of this being filled with the Spirit is that we will speak to one another, we will sing to one another the Psalms, Psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Actually, Psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs are descriptions of different types of Psalms that you will find in the Psalter. Sadly, the church has not always obeyed this command to sing Psalms, and that's one of the reasons, I think, for the widespread confusion that we see in the church today. We need the Psalms. The Psalms are central and foundational to the Christian life. Again, there is a psalm for every emotion, every experience, every situation. The psalms are meant to be sung, no doubt. That is one of the most obvious things about the psalms. But I also believe they are meant to be studied and preached. They're to be used as vehicles of training and instruction in the life of the church. The psalms, in fact, are considered part of the Bible's wisdom literature. And we can glean wisdom about life, again, all of life, from the Psalms. So this weekend, we've got four Psalms we're going to look at. Four Psalms we will examine. Psalm 23, Psalm 110, Psalm 78, and Psalm 88. And each one of these Psalms speaks to some aspect of the crisis we face in our day. Psalm 23 especially speaks to the crisis of anxiety. Uh, Psalm 110 speaks to the cultural crisis, what some people call the culture war, uh, and, and everything that is uh, associated with that. It speaks to our cultural crisis, our political crisis. Psalm 78 addresses the crisis in the family, and especially the crisis that exists in the relationship between the generations. And then Psalm 88 deals with what some might call the mental health crisis, uh, a crisis of despair that we see uh, all around us. So we're going to start tonight with Psalm 23. Uh, we just sang it, but I want to read it for us as well. This is probably the most familiar uh, and most famous and most beloved of all the Psalms. It's certainly one that speaks directly to our situation uh, as we, again, live in a time of uncertainty and anxiety. As we look out at this world around us, riddled as it is with uncertainty and anxiety, where do we find hope? Where do we find guidance and direction? Psalm 23 answers. So let me read for us Psalm 23. A Psalm of David. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup runs over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we ask now that you would bless the proclamation of your word, that you would fill us with wisdom. Father, you are our shepherd. Speak to us words of righteousness, words of comfort, words of cheer, words of truth through your messenger this night. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. 
So we are looking tonight at the most famous psalm of them all. In fact, this is probably the most famous piece of poetry ever written, the 23rd psalm. Uh, this psalm is justly famous because of its beauty and its simplicity, because of the comfort that it brings, because of its vivid imagery. Uh, of course, it's well known from its use in many funeral liturgies. But just because this psalm is familiar to us does not mean it is well understood. One thing I've found as a pastor over the years is that the more familiar a passage is, very often the less understood that passage is. It's like the more familiar somebody is with a passage, the less they really understand it. And I think that's true of the 23rd Psalm. Uh, as we're going to see tonight, this uh, psalm really is a wartime psalm. It's written from and for the battlefield. It is a psalm for times of crisis. Again, we live in an anxious age, an age that is full of anxiety, an age that is full of uncertainty, an age that is full of fear. And this psalm is well-suited for our circumstances. It's a very fitting psalm for our times. You know, if we live in a time of great crisis, this is a psalm that addresses the crisis. The world is becoming a, a more dangerous place. You can sense that. How do we navigate the dangers. If we live in a time that is supercharged with anxiety and fear that you can feel all around you as you look at what's going on in our culture, what are we to do? Psalm 23 gives us an answer to that anxiety and fear. There is a way to overcome anxiety and fear and in fact live joyful lives full of peace, full of contentment, even in the midst of this swirl that we find all around us. Psalm 23 shows us the way. What can Psalm 23 do for you? Well, let's look at this. Uh, think of it this way. And I picked up this illustration from Edwin Friedman. Don't know if any of you are familiar with his book, Failure of Nerve. Very helpful book. Uh, but this is his illustration. I'm not an electrician, so I get some details wrong here. Uh, blame Friedman. But I think this, this is a useful way to think about it. In an electrical circuit, transformers can step up or step down the charge that runs through them. So voltage goes into the transformer and the voltage level can be increased or decreased. Typically, power is transported from the power company at 11,000 volts to the transformer. But coming into your house, you don't want it at 11,000 volts. You want it at about 110 volts. If it comes into your house at 11,000 volts, it's probably gonna blow up all your appliances. It's probably gonna set your house on fire and burn your house to the ground. So this is what transformers do. They can step up or step down the voltage. Of course, we use transformers to step down the voltage so it can come into our homes uh, and, and be used. But as I said, transformers can also step up the current and increase the voltage and intensify it. And, and so transformers, as they can step up the voltage or step it down, that represents really two different kinds of people and two different ways of responding to the crisis of our age. You have some people who are step-up transformers. There is a charge flowing, a charge of anxiety flowing. There is a charge of anxiety and fear running through their family or through the church or through the culture. And they are so reactive that they will intensify it. Uh, people who respond this way, they tend to catastrophize anything. Uh, they focus on the worst possible outcome. They accentuate the negative, the risks, the dangers, all that could go wrong. And all that becomes the lens through which they view the world. And so they become, you could say, evangelists of fear. 
Uh, they are catechized in fear and in anxiety. And their anxieties are usually not self-contained. Their anxieties are usually contagious. And so these anxieties can spread to other people. Catastrophizing becomes a habit uh, of the heart. Fear becomes a state of mind. They supercharge the anxieties of the moment. The motto of this kind of person is, no situation is so bad that it can't be made worse. Doesn't matter how bad it is, it could get worse. And it just might. But there's another way to be a transformer, and that is to be a step down transformer. So you step down that charge to where it is safe. You can take that 11,000 volts coming in, and you can take it down to a very safe and usable 110 volts. But how do, you, how do you do that? How do you become the step-down transformer? I would argue this is exactly what Psalm 23 is all about. Psalm 23 is our step-down transformer. Run that 11,000-volt problem, that 11,000-volt crisis, into Psalm 23, and Psalm 23 can take it down to a very manageable 110 volts. See, this is what David is doing in the 23rd Psalm. The Psalm is a step-down transformer. It gives you a different kind of lens through which to view the world and your life. Uh, yes, there are anxieties, there are stresses, uh, there are calamities that come upon us, there are calamities going on in the world around us. But when you look at all of them through the lens of this Psalm, you find yourself able to live a joyful, confident life no matter what happens. You can live with, with peace, and you can live with poise. If you let Psalm 23 become the lens through which you view life and the, the problems in your life and the problems in the world all around us, you will be happier. You'll be more decisive. You'll make better decisions. Instead of spreading fear and anxiety, you'll be able to spread joy to others. You'll have a joy that becomes contagious and spreads to others. You'll be a better parent or a better leader or a better employer or, or employee. You'll have peace. You'll have contentment. And this peace and contentment just might catch the eye of an unbelieving world. That peace and contentment just might catch the eye of an unbeliever. Calmness in the face of a, of a crisis can actually be an evangelistic tool for the church as they see how we live our lives in the midst of hard times. This kind of peace, this kind of calmness, this kind of joy is very attractive. So what does Psalm 23 teach us? How does Psalm 23 reduce the charge of these high-voltage, high-pressure, high-stress situations? Well, it starts with the metaphor in verse 1. This is really the master metaphor that controls the whole psalm. The Lord is my shepherd. That's the image that controls this whole psalm. The whole rest of the psalm flows out of this image as, uh, of the Lord as our shepherd. Now, if the Lord is our shepherd, what does that make us? That makes us sheep. And so this whole psalm is about a shepherd and his sheep, the sheep of his pasture, the flock that he cares for. You have to see those two things in the psalm, the shepherd and the sheep. The whole psalm is about a shepherd and his sheep. Uh, I actually came across somebody a while back that uh, he said that uh, if you had a, a year to study the Bible, you know, just a year to give yourself completely to studying the Bible, you should spend the first six months studying farming practices and livestock rather than the Bible. Uh, because so much of the Bible's imagery is drawn from agrarian life. Now, I think that's a bit of an exaggeration. 
Uh, I, I didn't do that myself. We don't test men at Presbytery for, uh, for these things. How much time have you spent uh, on a farm? Uh, you know, we still send guys to seminary, not to farms, generally speaking. But I think there's an element of truth in this because these really are the images that we find so often in Scripture. And so many of the key figures in Scripture come out of this kind of background. Abel was a shepherd. Moses was a shepherd. Of course, David, who wrote this psalm, was a shepherd. A lot of the priests and prophets like Ezekiel and Jeremiah are called shepherds. Elders in the church are called shepherds. It's important imagery to understand, to understand what a shepherd is. What are shepherds like? I think sometimes we have an overly romanticized, maybe overly sentimental view of what it meant in the ancient world to be a shepherd. Uh, shepherds in the ancient world were really more like cowboys. Uh, they, were, they were tough, but they were also compassionate. Uh, they had to be tough because there would be invaders, there would be attackers uh, trying to get the sheep, and they had to be able to repel those attackers, but they also had to be compassionate, caring for the sheep. To be a shepherd, it was difficult, dangerous work. The job description of the shepherd essentially came down to this. He must protect and provide for the sheep. He has authority over the sheep, but he also has responsibility for the sheep. David himself was a shepherd, so he's speaking here from his own experience. In fact, he was really doubly a shepherd. Uh, he was a shepherd to his father Jesse's flocks, but then he also became king of Israel. He became a shepherd to the people of the nation, the people of Israel. Of course, uh, and this is common imagery that was used for Israel's king. Israel's kings would be routinely referred to as shepherds. Remember when David wanted to fight Goliath in 1 Samuel, and Saul did not think he was capable, of course, because David was just practically a boy at the time. Uh, and, and, and remember how David responded to that when Saul said, there's no way, you know, you're not, you know, we're talking about fighting a giant here. You're just a small boy. David said this. He said, your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and it took a lamb from the flock, I went after him, struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears. The Lord has delivered me from the paw of the lion and the bear, and he will deliver me from the hand of Goliath. See, that's what shepherds do. That's, that's, that's the job of the shepherd. Shepherds go to war for the sheep. They seek to protect the sheep and to deliver the sheep. They will rescue the sheep. The shepherd will even lay down his life for the sheep. In Psalm 23, the Lord is called our shepherd. And this is interesting too, because I've mentioned a number of human figures who are called shepherds, but there are a number of places in scripture where God is identified as the shepherd of his people. You have here in Psalm 23, you have this imagery. You have it in Genesis 48, where Jacob says, God has been my shepherd all my days. In Psalm 80, Asaph calls out to God as the shepherd of Israel who leads his flock. Of course, there are a number of other passages. The most famous passage, of course, is John chapter 10, where Jesus picks up on this imagery and describes himself as the good shepherd who will lay down his life for the sheep. He takes on the wolf to protect the sheep. He'll save the flock. John chapter 10 shows us the fulfillment of Psalm 23. It reveals the full identity of the divine shepherd. When David says here, the Lord is my shepherd, who is he talking about? He's talking about Jesus. 
In Jesus, the one true God, the creator and ruler over all, has become our shepherd. All our fears and anxieties stem from forgetting just this truth. The Lord is our shepherd means Jesus is our shepherd, and he will do whatever it takes to save us as his people. In fact, it's interesting to see how Psalm 23 fits together with the Psalms that come right before and right after this Psalm. They're actually linked together, and there is a progression. And these Psalms, 22, 23, and 24, not only describe David's experience, they ultimately describe Jesus' experience. All of the Psalms are about Jesus. We need to understand that. And these three are linked together to describe a certain aspect of who Jesus is to us. Jesus prayed this psalm, Psalm 23, to his heavenly Father, uh, long before we pray it to him. Psalm 23 is a prayer by Jesus before it becomes a prayer to Jesus. So keep that in mind. So Jesus himself prayed Psalm 23. But we also know Jesus prayed the psalm right before it, Psalm 22. And Psalm 22, of course, is about the suffering of Jesus, the betrayal of Jesus, the trial of Jesus, and the crucifixion of Jesus. It opens with those words that Jesus spoke on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it describes in excruciating detail the crucifixion of Jesus, the sufferings that Jesus endured on the tree. It is Jesus' own prayer from the depths of despair. Now, jump ahead to Psalm 24. Psalm 24 describes the ascension of Jesus into heaven. It celebrates his coronation as king, his homecoming, as it were, when he enters into glory, when he enters into the gates of heaven as the king of glory. So you've got Psalm 22 as crucifixion. Psalm 24, that's about his ascension. What about Psalm 23? Psalm 23 is Jesus passing through the valley of the shadow of death. It's what happens between Jesus' sufferings on the cross in Psalm 22 and his exaltation in Psalm 24. And so these Psalms, 22, 23, and 24, give us a whole picture describing Jesus' suffering, his burial, his exaltation. Because Jesus has suffered for us, he has proven himself to be a faithful and good shepherd to rule us and rescue us in love. Because again, really, that is the work of the shepherd. He is our savior, our defender, our protector, our provider, the one who fights for his flock, who leads us, who rescues us, who rules us all for our good. Well, here's another way to think about it. Uh, you know, that word uh, pastor is another word for shepherd. That's what pastor means. You can think of it this way. The Lord is my shepherd. The Lord is my pastor. Isn't that comforting to know that the Lord pastors you through life's hardships. That's what it means for the Lord to be our shepherd. Now, that's the shepherd part of it. Let's talk about the sheep part of it. Just as there are many passages that describe the Lord as our shepherd, there are many passages that describe us as sheep. In fact, there are several passages that describe us, God's people, as sheep who are in need of a shepherd. You know, all we like sheep have gone astray. Now, it's very important to get this. When the Bible describes us as sheep, it is not complimenting us. That is not, a, I know sheep are cute and fuzzy and whatever, but it is not a compliment. Um, you know, when we want to talk about somebody who can't think for himself, what do we say? If you've got a group of people and they just can't think for themselves, we call them sheep. Or maybe we get clever and call them sheeple. Because, you know, that's when somebody can't think for himself and you're just a follower, yeah, you're just a sheep. And you can actually go on YouTube and you can find videos where, you know, a sheep will go off a cliff 
and another sheep will follow him right behind. I mean, that's just what sheep do. They're just, they're, they're dumb animals. Uh, there, there's a really hilarious one of a sheep that jumps into this rock crevice and the shepherd goes and pulls him out. And within seconds, he's jumped right back into that rock crevice. Uh, sheep just don't learn, not easily. Okay. That's a picture of us. Everybody in the ancient world knew that sheep are not smart animals. The stereotypes of, of, of sheep are true. Sheep are not among the smartest of animals. Uh, in fact, they are among the dumbest of animals. Have you ever wondered why no sports team uh, uses <laughs> sheep as... I mean, you got the Rams. Okay, that's close. Okay, <laughs> got the Rams. But, you know, you don't have the Seattle sheep. Okay, you have the Seattle Seahawks, you got the you know, Chicago Bears or Detroit Lions, but there's no team that calls themselves the sheep because that, there's just, why would you? you know, you'd be insulting yourself. Sheep are weak, they're needy, they're vulnerable, they're prone to wander from the flock, they're easy prey for other animals, they need lots of care. Sheep literally cannot make it without a shepherd. This is one of the great problems that the environmentalists have is there are certain animals out there, and sheep are among them, that simply cannot do without humans caring for them. Sheep really can't make it without the care of a shepherd. They are dependent. They need that guidance, that leadership. That's how we are. The needs of the sheep show us our own needs. All of us are sheepish. We are sheep like. And without the loving rule and protection and provision of our shepherd, we cannot survive. But what happens when we do trust the Lord as our shepherd? That's what David is expressing in this psalm is his trust in the Lord to be his shepherd. When we join ourselves to the Lord's flock and when we trust in him as our shepherd, what happens? Well, again, look at the rest of this psalm and we'll see. We find that sheep who trust the shepherd thrive. And so David goes on to say, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not lack anything. Now this is really interesting. There are a lot of places uh, in, in, in this psalm where this is true, where there's an echo of something, and particularly an echo of, uh, of the story of the Exodus actually shows up several times in this psalm. This is one of the clearest. This is an echo of Israel's Exodus experience. So back in Deuteronomy chapter 2, verse 7, Moses says to the people as they're coming to the end of their wilderness journeying, their uh, 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, Moses says to them, you lacked nothing. Think about how the Lord took care of Israel in the desert. Their shoes did not wear out. Uh, they got manna from heaven every day so they'd have something to eat. They got water from a rock so they would have something to drink. They had everything they need. All their needs were met. Moses is literally correct. They lacked nothing. David is saying this is how the Lord cares for us. Again, the point here is that the shepherd will provide for us, but it's not just that the Lord provides, it's that, it's that this leads to contentment. This is describing the contentment the sheep experience under his care. If you don't have a shepherd you trust to provide for you, you will always experience a sense of lack. You'll always have this sense that you're missing something, and whatever you have, no matter how much it is, it will never be enough. You know, it's like when they asked John Rockefeller when he was the wealthiest man in the world, how much money is enough? And he said, just a little bit more, okay? Even with all that money, he sensed he still lacked something. But here the sheep who is following the shepherd does not lack anything. 
You know, left to ourselves, we have these insatiable cravings and desires and wants. But when we trust the shepherd, when we trust the shepherd, we can find contentment. Our hearts will be restless till they find rest in this heavenly shepherd. You know, life will play tricks on us sometimes. Life can play, play tricks on us. We are terrible judges of what will actually make us happy. This is one of the most frustrating things about, uh, about sinful people is we are terrible judges of what will actually make us happy. We think something's going to make us happy. We get it and we find out it didn't work. You know, they've done studies on lottery workers and they, on lottery winners and they find out that, you know, people who win the lottery uh, so often a year later, two years later, their lives are actually worse than they were before they won the lottery. That winning the lottery, getting what they wanted, all that money, getting what they thought would make them happy has actually made them even more miserable than they were before. And so often this is how it is for all those who don't trust this shepherd and look to this shepherd as the one who will meet their needs. You will always be miserable, even if, maybe especially if, you get what you thought you wanted. The only way to find contentment is by following this shepherd. The psalm continues. He makes me to lie down in green pastures and he leads me beside still waters uh, or that still waters that could also be translated as restful waters. It's the same word that's used in Psalm 95 to describe the promised land as a place of rest. These waters are a place of rest. This is a picture, of course, that is picked up in Mark chapter 6, where Jesus calms the storm and then makes the people sit down in the green pasture so he can feed them. Again, you see this picture that Jesus is the good shepherd uh, there. This is a picture of peace and provision and safety and rest and refreshment. You know, imagine, this is the picture here. Imagine sheep munching away on green grass, you know, getting a cool drink from the refreshing stream while the shepherd is out there guarding the perimeter, looking for thieves or wolves who would prowl about and, and, and steal the sheep or destroy the sheep. And so the sheep are able to relax, oblivious to many of the threats that the shepherd is protecting them from, many of the threats that the shepherd is driving off. The psalm continues, he restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. The care that the shepherd provides is holistic. You've got green pastures for feeding, but it's not just that. It's not just a, a kind of physical provision here. He restores souls. Spiritual needs are being met as well. He guides us in paths of righteousness. The way of righteousness in scripture, of course, is always the way of wisdom and the way of life. He imparts words of wisdom, words of life to us to direct us, and he does this for his own name's sake. The Lord has tied his reputation to our well-being. God has staked his reputation to the guidance he gives to his people, to the salvation he brings to them. God's reputation is at stake in him fulfilling the promises that he has made to us. And you can bet God's going to come through. God does for us what he says he will do. And he does it for his own name's sake, for his own glory. The psalm goes on. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff comfort me. Obviously, the life of the Christian is not easy. It's not flowery beds of ease. There are trials. There are temptations. There are hardships we all go through, we all have different struggles uh, and, and, um, and, and things we have to deal with, but we can endure them 
And this is how, this is what David is telling us. We can endure any trial we pass through because the shepherd is with us. We are never alone. The Christian life has highs and lows, but when you are in the lows, when you are in the valley, you are not alone. Note that it is not death the psalmist faces here. It is the shadow of death we face. And this is because our great shepherd has already faced death on our behalf. He's already dealt with death. He's died on our behalf. He has defeated death on our behalf. And so we don't face death. We just face the shadow of death. This is such a beautiful thing. Yes, Christians still die, but we don't experience death as a curse. If we're in Christ, we can even experience death as a kind of stepping stone to a greater glory. And of course, a foretaste of what is to come at the last day, the resurrection. We don't face death. We face a shadow of death, and this shadow cannot harm you. Charles Spurgeon put it this way, the shadow of a dog cannot bite, the shadow of a sword cannot kill, and the shadow of death cannot destroy us. Okay, imagine a dog coming after you to bite you, okay, but what if it's just the shadow? That, that doesn't, the, the shadow can't do anything, can't harm you. Or imagine this, you know, two possibilities. One is you're standing in the middle of the street and a truck is coming straight for you and that truck runs you over, okay? That's, that's one image. The truck flattens you into the pavement, okay? Now picture it another way. You're standing off to the side of the road. The truck speeds down the road just as before, but now you're not in its path, but as it goes by, its shadow passes over you. Okay, would you rather get run over by the truck or by the shadow of the truck? Okay, I think the answer is obvious. We'd much rather face the shadow of the truck than the truck itself. And that's what this psalm is saying. We don't face death in all its terror, in all its cursedness. No, death has been defeated. We just face the shadow. So not even death is something we need to fear. You know, it's easy to think if the Lord is my shepherd, why do I have to pass through the valley of the shadow of death at all? Why can't we just fly above it or fly or go around it? You know, why do we have to go through the, the darkness of trial? Why do we have to go through this valley of hardship at all? Well, to me, this is kind of like people who read the Lord of the Rings and want to ask, well, why couldn't the eagles have just taken the ring to the Mount of Doom? You know, we'd have saved Sam and Frodo a lot of trouble, right? I mean, that's, you know... Uh, that, that, that's a question people want to ask. But, you know, had the eagles taken the ring, it would not have been as good of a story. And God is a better storyteller than Tolkien. And the point is not just to destroy the ring. The point is for Sam and Frodo to mature, to grow, to be strengthened. And so it is when God brings us through the valley of the shadow of death, he has a good purpose. He uses the valley of darkness to shape us, to mold us, to strengthen us. The shepherd is training the sheep so they can follow him through thick and thin. He's maturing us. Uh, it's kind of like what Winston Churchill said. He said, if you find yourself going through hell, keep going. Well, that's exactly right. If you are going through the valley of the shadow of death, keep going. If you're going through the valley of darkness, keep going. David here is telling us there will always be a mountaintop on the other side we'll get to. Yes, there are lows, but there will be highs as well. Psalm 23 shows us that when we keep going through those hellish times, our shepherd is with us. We're never alone. We're never totally in the dark. Our shepherd is with us every step of the way. David says then, uh, therefore, he says, I will fear no evil. 
You do not need to fear any evil. You don't have to fear your own evil because it's forgiven. You don't have to worry if your own sins will separate you from the love of God because nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Nothing causes more fear than a bad conscience, which comes from doing bad things. You know, there's that line in Leviticus, the guilty are scared of a rustling leaf. Okay, but we don't have to live that way because we don't live with a bad conscience or a guilty conscience. We know we are forgiven so we can live with confidence. We know our sins have been dealt with so we do not need to fear any evil because all the evil we've done has been forgiven. The shepherd has laid down his life in order to deal with our evil, to take that evil away from us, to, to take the punishment, our evil, the evil things we do to deal with what we deserve. But you also don't have to fear the evil that is out there in the world and what that evil might do to you. You know, th think about this. Think about how the news works today. Uh, you know, I don't watch a lot of news. I, I really hope that you don't either unless you've got a really good reason. Uh, but I, I believe that so much of what we call the mainstream media, I believe that so much of the mainstream media that's out there is satanic. It's demonic. And I'm not trying to be hyperbolic. I, I really do think that the talking heads on TV are all too often tools of Satan. Because Satan wants to use the news and, and, and all the terrible events that you're going to hear about if you watch the news to keep you from trusting in Jesus and to stir up your anxiety and your fear and to divide us against each other. The whole point of the news now, I think, is to keep people scared. You got a 24-7 news cycle so people can be scared and anxious 24-7. They want you to live in fear. The way the news media is designed and packaged and marketed is all to step up, you know, it's to act like one of those step-up transformers to intensify the fear and anxiety in your life. And it's really to keep you from trusting in God, and it's to get you to trust in their false God, which in our day is all too often the state. That's what they want. It's a demonic strategy, but a very effective one. If you try to face life, the difficulties of life, the difficulties of our wor world today, without a shepherd, it will be terrifying. You'll have all kinds of evil to fear because you can't face it. You can't face it on your own. What you need to recognize is that when you trust in the sovereign shepherd, you know he will take care of you. You have nothing to fear. The world is a scary place, but you don't have to be scared. You don't have to be scared. You can live a courageous life. You can live a fear-free life. You can live a life without anxiety. See, when fear and anxiety hit, what do you do? Really, when, when fear, uh, some reason to be fearful or some reason to be anxious hits you, what do you do? You could magnify that anxiety. You could step it up. And that's what's going to happen if you mix that fear, that anxiety with your own weaknesses and your own insecurities. And not only is that going to intensify your own anxiety and your own fearfulness, but it's going to radiate out from you to others. It's going to be contagious and others are going to get all caught up in your anxieties too. That, that's one way you could respond. Or here's the other way you could respond. Instead of sending that anxiety out, you could send that anxiety up. And you could send it up to the Lord, the Lord, your shepherd, who promises to take care of you. You can cast your cares upon him. The Lord is telling us here he wants to care for us. We need to give him our 
cares, knowing that he cares for us. David goes on, he speaks of the rod and the staff, and these are uh, important tools that uh, any shepherd would have, and I think they can be distinguished. Um, the rod would be used to smite enemies. So think about in the book of Exodus, Moses uses his rod to smite the Egyptians. This is another Exodus echo here. Uh, Moses uses his rod to smite the Egyptians until Pharaoh finally relents and let God, lets God's flock go free. That's what the rod is for, to deliver the sheep. Later, the rod parts the sea, the Red Sea, that drowns Pharaoh's army. And so the shepherd's rod is a weapon. Think about Psalm 2, where Jesus, the, the, the son of David there, has the rod that he uses to smash the nations. The staff, I think the imagery here is a little bit different. Um, the staff is used to discipline and direct the sheep. So it's a comfort, but in a different kind of way. It's a comfort the same way that when a child is disciplined, there's a comfort in that because even though the discipline is painful for the child, the child knows mom and dad love me. Mom and dad care. They care enough to discipline me. And so it is here. The Lord uses his staff. He disciplines those he loves. So if the rod protects you from predators, the staff protects you from you. And then David goes on, he says, you prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. Yes, there are enemies. The enemies may even have us surrounded, but we can celebrate because the Lord prepares a feast for us. Think about the Lord's Supper. Every Sunday, you gather in here, you have the Lord's Supper together, you feast. This is a feast the Lord has prepared for you. And meanwhile, you've got enemies all over this city, all around. People who would despise you for what you're doing, for what you believe, for what you teach. But the Lord prepares a feast for you every Lord's Day in the midst of your enemies. Yes, there are enemies, but we can celebrate because the Lord is good. The Lord is good to us. We do not need to fear. The psalm continues, you anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. These are pictures of the glory the shepherd bestows on his sheep. Oil in Psalm 104 makes man's face to shine. So man's face can radiate with God's glory. Just like Moses' face shined when he had been in the presence of the Lord, the Lord anoints our faces with oil so we can radiate with his glory. We can shine with his glory. It is a sign of joy that the Lord gives to us. It's interesting, anointing with oil is for ordination in the Old Testament. Uh, it's for healing in the New Testament. These are things the Lord does for his people. We have all been ordained. We are sheep, yes, but we have been made into sheep who are priests. We are a royal priesthood. And the Lord promises to bring healing to us as his people. David says here, the cup overflows. You know, some want to say the cup is half empty. Some want to say the cup is half full. Well, David says it's overflowing. And this is a sign of God's blessing to his people. It means God has given you more blessing than you can contain. It means God has given you blessings that you can share with others. Our cup is running over with blessing. Our cup is filled to the brim and then some with the blessing of the Lord. And finally, David says, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This is a great line as well. Uh, a lot of times, understanding the range of meaning and the wider usages of a word in Scripture can really help us. You know, you have a word in Scripture, it looks like a key word, so you go look at other ways that it's used in other texts of Scripture. And that can really move you from reading the Bible in black and white to reading the Bible in vivid color, because you really get a sense for what this word means, the fullness of it. Well, that's how it is here with the word that's translated as 
mercy in this passage. The word that's translated as mercy here is the Hebrew word hesed. Surely goodness and hesed shall follow me all the days of my life. Hesed can also be translated as covenant faithfulness or as loving kindness. It takes about half a dictionary, actually, to define the word hesed. Okay, if you ever look it up and dig into it, you find this is, a mean, this is a word that has got a wide range of meanings, and they're all good. It describes the Lord's grace and mercy and covenant faithfulness and, and his loving kindness to his people. All of those things rolled into one. And note here, this goodness and mercy don't just follow us, they pursue us. This mercy chases after us. God is the hound of heaven pursuing us with his blessing. That's what the psalmist says here. That's what David says. Goodness and mercy shall follow me, shall pursue me. Think of the father of the prodigal son pursuing his son when he sees his son over the horizon. The Lord comes after his people. Think about the shepherd who leaves the 99 to go after the one that has strayed. That's the kind of thing David is describing here. David was a man who was often pursued by his enemies who were out to kill him. And when those enemies pursued him, the same word is used. Those enemies who were hunting him down to kill him, that's what it says. They would follow after him. Well, now this same word is used to describe the Lord's blessing chasing after him, the Lord's blessing hunting him down, the Lord hunting David down so he can give him even more blessing than he's already given. See, all throughout David's life, even when enemies were chasing after him, it was really God's covenant love in hot pursuit coming after him for his good. Because God promised to work all of these things, even these hardships and trials together for David's good. And this is just how it is in our life. In fact, it's really interesting. You can say in this psalm, the Lord goes before us and he follows after us. In other words, his loving presence surrounds us. He leads us and he is our rear guard. He goes before us and comes after us. Now, this is true. If the Lord is your shepherd, if the good shepherd is for you, who can be against you? If he's with you, your victory, your salvation is assured. You have nothing to fear, nothing to be anxious about. Run all your anxieties through the Psalm 23 transformer. And even if it's coming in at 11,000 volts, ready to burn you to a crisp and burn your house to the ground, you run it through Psalm 23 and oh, now it's usable. It's manageable. There's really not anything there to fear. I find it really interesting. The Psalm ends with David dwelling in God's house. And the reason this is interesting is because when David was alive, there was no house of God in Israel. The tabernacle had been dismantled. The temple had not yet been built. Nevertheless, David is confident he will dwell with the Lord forever in his house. And that's a beautiful picture. David's fellowship with the Lord in the Lord's house. David Paulison has written what he calls the anti-Psalm 23. And this is really interesting. Basically, what Pallison says is, if you take away the good shepherd, what is life like? And what you find is you get the opposite of everything described here. So this is David Pollison's anti-Psalm 23. Rewriting Psalm 23 when the good shepherd is nowhere to be found. I'm on my own. No one looks out for me or protects me. 
I experience a continual sense of need. Nothing's quite right. I'm always restless. I'm easily frustrated and often disappointed. My soul feels broken, twisted, and stuck. I can't fix myself. I stumble down some dark paths. Still, I insist I want to do what I want, when I want, how I want. I find no lasting comfort. I'm alone, facing everything that could hurt me. I can't really trust anyone. No one has my back. No one is really for me except for me. I belong to no one except myself. My cup is never quite full enough. I'm left empty. Disappointment follows me all the days of my life. Life is a living death, and then I die. Basically, two ways to live. You can live Psalm 23, or you can live anti-Psalm 23. Those are your two choices. It will be one or the other. You will either live by this psalm or by the anti-psalm. And if you choose to live by the anti-psalm, you will find the idols you turn to do not comfort you. The things that you turn to to numb the pain of life, the alcohol, the porn, the Netflix binging, uh, whatever you think might make you feel better is actually not going to work. They'll actually just make your anxiety worse. There's only one place to find real lasting comfort. Only one way to have safe passage through this world, and that is to know the Lord as your shepherd and to follow him. Because as you follow him, his mercy follows you. The Lord leads you and the Lord follows you. He goes before you and he comes behind you. He encloses you in the circle of his love. He invites you into his house to dwell with him, to be one with him. Here is the answer to all your anxieties, knowing the Lord as your shepherd, knowing he will take care of you, knowing he is your heavenly father. One last thought. This is one more way to think about this. Think about a dad with his little kids. And and, and what do those little kids, what do they have to worry about? Would a good father say to his little kid, hey, you know what? Uh, Money's running kind of tight this month. Not really sure how we're going to pay the mortgage. Uh, we got lots of bills coming in. I'm not sure how we're going to make it. Would a good dad burden his four-year-old with that kind of thing? No, definitely not. You know, a good dad's not going to go to his young son and say, hey, you know what? We only got $100 left in the checking account. I don't know how we're going to eat this week. Okay, that's just not something that a good dad would do. You would not burden your kids in that way. Okay? You know that as a father, those are your burdens to bear, not your child's. And so you take care of them. And if you're a good dad, you want your kids to trust you as their father to take care of all that. They're going to trust their dad to handle it. Well, so it is here. Okay, the Lord's never short on cash. The Lord doesn't have any of those kind of problems. But the point is, so often our anxiety arises because we are trying to bear burdens that the Lord doesn't want us to carry. And here in this psalm, the Lord is saying, hey, why don't you give me that burden? I can carry that burden for you. You actually don't have to worry about that. I'll take care of it. You actually don't have to worry about this or be anxious about this or be stressed about this. I'll handle it for you. This is what the Lord is saying to us. Don't try to bear burdens that aren't yours to bear. That is what causes your anxiety. The main source of our anxiety is when we seek to carry burdens the Father wants to carry for us. Do you think of God as your protective shepherd, as your loving Father, whose mercy 
will chase after you? Do you want solid joy in place of chronic anxiety? Do you want wisdom during the hardships of life? Then look to the Lord your shepherd in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.